0: Grab yourself a glass of Glühwein. It's winter on Monocle 24, and you're listening to Winter Weekend. Today, what's a local high street without a good bookshop? We'll meet a man with a passion for publishing, Bill Samuel, whose grandfather started the iconic London bookseller,
1: Foyle's. He was arguably the greatest bookseller of the 20th century, got more books into more people's hands than anyone else, but promoted the business by his showmanship.
0: Then we'll touch down in chilly Helsinki for a lesson in cosy homemaking at Muji's brand-new retail outpost. And later... (laughs) Our own Bill Lutie takes the plunge in Zurich for a spot of winter swimming. All that and a suggestion from our Monocle Film Club too. I'm Georgina Godwin and your winter weekend starts now. Welcome to the programme. First today, some winter reading. Bill Samuel's grandfather started the iconic London bookshop Foils more than a century ago. In his memoir, An Accidental Bookseller, published earlier this year, Samuel tells the story of his lifelong relationship with Foyles. It covers fond childhood memories of his eccentric and brilliant grandfather, William Foyle, and touches on his own time in charge of the famous shop. Phil, welcome to Monocle24. Tell us, how do you fit in into the Foyle family?
1: I'm one of the grandsons of the founder. My mother was William Foyle's oldest child, she was the oldest sister to Christina Foyle, and I'm her only son.
0: So tell us about the beginning of the business back in, I think it was, 1903.
1: 1903. My grandfather and his younger brother were the sixth and seventh sons, respectively, of a family living in Shoreditch in the poorest parts of East London who had a very small family business, a wholesale dry salter, One of the sons, the oldest son, was earmarked to inherit the business. The others were told to make their own way in life. My grandfather and his younger brother Gilbert decided to go into the civil service, for which they had to take exams, for which they had to buy books to study. They duly failed the exams, advertised the books for sale, were inundated with responses jumped on their bikes and scoured the second-hand bookshops of London to meet the demand. So it started on my great-grandmother's kitchen table.
0: That's extraordinary. And in fact, the business thrived on selling second-hand books for many years.
1: Yes. I think they started selling new books when they'd been going for about 10 years. But second-hand books were the heart of the business, certainly until the 1960s. And we were still offering second-hand books when I got involved at the turn of the century.
0: Now the business has moved several times. It started off on
1: Cecil Court. So It started well. It started, great granny's kitchen table, then a little shop in Peckham, but within about two or three years, they had rented a unit in Cecil Court, which is at off the bottom end of Charing Cross Road, and was now is now certainly a delightful children's bookshop. They moved to Charing Cross Road proper in about nineteen twelve. And to their previous premises about 1920, the wonderful old shop that Mm. most people remember, Mm. chaotic, etc.
0: Now, William was known as the Barnum of booksellers because uh, he really was a showman, wasn't he?
1: He was a terrific showman, a terrific self-publicist. But... Perhaps deceptively, he was an absolutely brilliant bookseller. He had a passion for books. He wanted to get books into as many people's hands as possible. And he he was arguably the greatest bookseller of the 20th century, got more books into more people's hands than anyone else, but promoted the business by his showmanship. He wasn't extrovert. He could find a flamboyant touch in things.
0: Mm. And he expanded the business hugely. I mean, it wasn't just books, it was publishing, it was music, it was musical instruments, and particularly uh, interested in his philately department because that came from reusing the stamps from mail orders. Tell us about that.
1: By the 1930s, Foyles had built up a huge mail order business. They were, by then, the largest bookseller in the English-speaking world, in my childhood, we used to get 35,000 letters on the first post of every morning, and that was a time when we had more than one postal delivery. We used to get two mail vans coming into our goods yard and offloading, as I said, 35,000 letters every morning. We had a room full of middle-aged ladies, always ladies, always middle-aged, opening envelopes, taking out checks, postal orders, cash, etc., and someone else was cutting the stamps off and sending them down to our philately department. So why waste an opportunity for income? <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Christina, then, your aunt and yes. William's daughter, then took over the shop.
1: Yes, she she took over gradually. I think officially she became managing director at the very end of the 1940s. But William Foyle didn't die until 1962, and he remained a very strong influence One of the reasons why I've written this book, by the way, is that everyone remembers Christina, partly because she's fairly recent history, but also she had such a reputation as a poor employer, but a very charismatic, beautiful, witty lady. And William is now forgotten, but he contributed so much. But yes, Christina took over... 1949,
0: 1950. Mm. And the business kept going, but it was sort of in gradual decline. She didn't appear to care much for making a profit.
1: No. My grandfather, in his heyday, when the company was very profitable, ploughed all the profits into property. So by the time Christina took over, we owned not only our own premises, but a fair number of other properties, both surrounding us in on the edge of Soho, but also a residential property in North London and agricultural land out in Essex. It was a significant portfolio that obviously generated a significant income. So the profit generated by the bookselling business was not that important. And I think Christina, she gradually lost interest. It became too much trouble for her. And my own belief is that she saw foils as her baby. She had no children. She didn't like children very much. She Didn't like people very much. She preferred animals. But she saw foils as her creation. And I think she rather wanted it to die when she died.
0: Mm -hmm. And it did, in fact, go into a big decline in the 80s and
1: 90s. Yes, terrible.
0: Mostly to do with the very bizarre pavement system.
1: Not mostly, but (laughs) that was a contributing factor. People had to locate the book they wanted, which wasn't always easy because some of the shelving systems were quite bizarre. They then had to find an assistant to serve them, and that assistant would write out a a chit. They then had to leave the book with the assistant, take the chit to a, a cash desk to pay, get it stamped as paid, go back, try and find the assistant again, and eventually collect their book it was not an easy process
0: As you discovered when you took over now you hadn't always been involved in the business you'd gone off and done other things
1: Yes I, I had, I, I qualified as a chartered accountant and I worked in largely abroad, Denmark East Africa, Caribbean, Middle East doing actually fairly interesting things and then Christina died and
0: Having made it clear that she didn't really want you in the business
1: Absolutely She didn't want any family. She appointed my cousin Christopher as chairman about ten days before she died, and I've seen the document she signed appointing him, and I suspect her hand was being guided by (laughs) someone who realised that there was going to be a vacuum because she was obviously dying. So Christopher was appointed, and about six months later... My mother, who had a small shareholding and who was still alive, suggested I join the board because of my general business experience. So I did. In well, I joined the board in the middle of December 1999.
0: And you found pretty much chaos.
1: I dispute the pretty much. I, <laughs> I found I found complete chaos. It, it, I won't say it defies description because I've tried to describe it in the memoir I've written. But it it was, it was chaotic. Being an accountant, I started in the accounts department and asked for the cash book to be told that there were seven different cash books, all of which showed a different picture, uh, including Christina Foyle's private cash book, which were the transactions that she didn't want to come to light, I think. And we didn't have a cash book that showed us how much money we had in the bank. So the world's greatest bookshop, to quote its logo, had no idea how much money it had in the bank on a day-to-day basis. And I then went to the, what they called the bought ledger department, where there were two or three ladies opening post and extracting invoices sent by publishers, screwing them up and throwing them in the waste paper basket. And I, I said, it seems a rather strange accounting system, why are you doing that? And I was told that Miss Foyle had told them that An invoice usually came in with the books to the basement, so they had orders to destroy any that came in the post in case they got paid twice. And the result was we were put on stop by publishers very regularly.
0: And, I mean, it wasn't just the account system. You did a thorough stock take, and what you found there was pretty amazing.
1: Yes, and my, my prime example. Bear in mind, there had been extensive fraud carried out, and... A lot of sort of minor frauds and we were seen as an easy target for publishers' representatives trying to get rid of hard-to-sell books. The most extreme example, I found 23 copies of a Chinese cookbook in Armenian. I think we had called it the market in Armenian cookbooks in London.
0: (laughs) Quite, quite extraordinary. You fixed all this, though, in a remarkably short space of time and then decided to move the shop. Now, that was a very big decision.
1: Yes. When my cousins and I took over, we recognised that the building was totally unsuitable for 21st century bookselling. It was five buildings that had been knocked together with different floor levels and nooks and crannies, perfect for shoplifters. It just wasn't ideal selling. We owned a long lease on part of the building occupied by Central St Martin School of Art... And in late 2002, we heard that they were planning to move. So we went to see them, and we invited some architects to have a look at the building and to produce sketches of how it could be turned into a bookshop. So that was late 2002. It took us 12 years to actually complete the purchase and the remodelling, largely because Central St Martin's plans got delayed, as is the way of things. But eventually, we acquired the building, we totally gutted it. And we turned it into, I think, uh, one of the finest bookshops in the world. And strangely, in 1927, my grandfather wrote his aims as a bookseller. And one of them was to have a building that was at least 50 foot wide and 100 foot long with a gallery and very light and airy. And that's pretty much what we've got. Mm. We have a lovely central atrium with light that streams down through the selling space. It's worked out very well. Bill Samuel, thank you. Bill's book, An Accidental Bookseller,
0: is out now. (laughs) Japanese lifestyle brand Muji has just opened its European flagship store in the chilly finnish capital of Helsinki. Monaco's Helsinki seeking correspondent Petri Butsoff met up with Muji's Europe Managing Director Takua Nagahara. They spoke about the city's potential for the Japanese brand and went on a walk through the new 3,500 square metre retail space.
2: The new Muji store is located on the fourth floor of the Kampi Shopping Center in downtown Helsinki. There has been a lot of buzz and hype around the opening after Muji's successful pop-ups in Helsinki last year and this year. It is not often that a brand takes over an entire floor in one of the city's most popular shopping centers. But it's far from a risk-free investment for Muji. The Kampi Shopping Center is not exactly known for high-quality retail playing host mostly to Scandinavian chain stores, American fast food outlets, and fast fashion stores. This won't necessarily reflect well on brand Muji. Then there's the location. The shopping center has five floors, but most people walk through its street-level floor and the first floor in order to get to the metro station and the bus station. Some people that I spoke to were skeptical about whether people who are not familiar with the brand would find the store easily.
3: There's a big uh, coach station downstairs, so quite a lot of people will be
4: around the area. Perhaps the fourth floor is not the best place in the shopping center, but I suppose it will be in the center of Helsinki, and Muji is quite a known brand, I think, so people who will be interested, I'm sure they'll find their way.
3: Well, it's a little bit out of the main point of life there, but I have to say I've been eating there there's lots of nice restaurants, so maybe that will help it.
2: And then there's the question whether Helsinki, a small capital of just half a million inhabitants, will prove out to be the ideal location for Muji's European flagship. But first, let's take a walk around the new store. I'm standing here in the middle of the Muji's new flagship store in Helsinki, on the fourth floor of the Compi Mall, the biggest and busiest mall in in the center of Helsinki, and Muji has essentially taken over an entire floor uh, of the mall. The store concept is quite interesting. You have your usual Muji items, you have clothing, men's and women's and kids' clothing, and you have the household items. I'm walking around here, I'm seeing a lot of cosmetics. And then you have peculiarities. Since we are in Finland, there is a sauna department. Uh, here with towels and, and buckets and, and all kinds of sponges. Quite a nice detail here at the opening. The first 500 guests will receive a Muji goodie bag, and printed on it in Japanese are the words bucket with the lid. And that's kind of a playful take on Finnish mall openings. Finnish customers are used to receiving a bucket when they visit a newly opened Mall, and nobody quite knows why they're so popular, but people actually queue up for hours just to get a pocket, so Muji has decided to do the same, this time with a plastic bag. Now moving on, there is a department of of books, Finnish design books, Kalevala, the Finnish national book, books by Tuve Jansson, the author and creator of the Moomin Valley books, books on Japanese design as well. And something that we haven't seen in too many Muji shops in Europe, there's actually a large food court and a restaurant area um, as well. Next, I sat down with Muji Europe's managing director, Mr. Takwa Nagahara, to ask him about the expectations for the store.
5: We had a pop-up store in Helsinki, and sales is amazing. And also we had to communicate with city of Helsinki and Business Finland. We discuss about Helsinki's customers' behavior and we have a very interesting and we would like to make a destination place in Helsinki. That's why we would like to make large largest store in Europe. We discussed about how to contribute to the Helsinki city and the problem in the central, there is no space actually to relax space in, in the city. That's why we would like to provide some relaxing space to gather people.
2: Nagara believes that Finnish and Japanese culture have many things in common, which is why the shop's food offering draws inspiration from both countries.
5: We would like to use a local ingredient. We describe some culture between Japan and Finland, and that's why some of the menu, we introduce Japanese items. For example, Finnish reindeer. And we also add Finnish Randy domburi. domburi is a rice bowl. And rice bowl is one of the Japan culture. Since 1980, we started a brand. We would like to follow to Finnish, Nordic culture. And also, I, I believe, and Finnish culture also, they follow to Japan culture. This kind of the more essential and minimalistic simplicity. That's the... Very similar way between Japan and Finnish.
2: The Helsinki store will give Muji valuable information as they prepare to revamp their shops outside of Japan to include food outlets, grocery shops, and design services. The strategy is far from risk free, though. Helsinki's residents are quality conscious and interested in the ethical aspects of the items that they purchase. Will Muji be able to respond to these demands? And will the Finns learn to love Japanese design and fashion? after the initial hype of the opening wears off. For Monaco in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov. Well, from one
0: wintry city to another. This time, we're in Switzerland. During the summer months, the banks of Lake Zurich are lined with city dwellers, keen to enjoy the sunshine and fresh Swiss air. Meeting friends and slipping into cool waters for a refreshing dip is a regular pastime. But, in winter, swimming in the city's central lake is not quite such a popular activity. There are a few, however, who won't be beaten by Zurich's wintry weather and who continue to swim in spite of the icy temperatures. So, naturally, we sent our own Bill Looty to meet those hardy souls.
4: Plunging myself into cold water is something I've taken to doing quite regularly, so when I heard about Zurich's winter swimmers, I knew it was something I'd need to check out. It wasn't long before i found them, agreed a time, and next thing I know, I'm on my way down to the lake that gives this city its name. When I agreed to do this, it was a beautifully sunny day. Now, it's really raining. I feel quite as exciting. So I just got off the tram. The weather has not <laughs> improved, but I've been assured that they'll be there, rain or shine. So we'll see how it goes.
2: Hey. You're Bill, Yes. Right? Yeah, I sent you an email. Hi, from... Doug. Yeah, yeah. Nice but... to meet you. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank
4: you. I met up with Doug, Adrian and Yvonne, all regulars down here at the lake. We paid our money, signed a form that agreed that if we drowned, there wouldn't be anyone to jump in after us, and we were ready. They told me that technically, for it to be a proper cold-water swim, the water temperature plus the air temperature had to be below 20. Today, the water, 9.2. The air, 10.9. This is only cool water swimming, they tell me, but it doesn't make me feel any more confident. So what's the tactic? Do you jump straight in or do you, you ease in. yourself?
2: just <laughs> simply walk in and stay. Yeah, you walk in. Have like, you never done it before? No,
4: it's my first. well, okay. not here, no.
6: Some people think if you jump, it, it can be bad for you. So you need to sort of get used to it right. a, a bit slowly. Concentrate and on the breathing. Okay. That's the only thing that matters, okay. breathe. As we walked
4: towards the water, we talked (laughs) tactics, techniques and a little bit of science, but it 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 felt to to me like these were all just distractions from what was about to happen. We lined up and, one by one, took the plunge. Okay, so just walk straight in, down the steps. It's easy, isn't it? (laughs) Okay. At this point, I lost the ability to speak and had to concentrate mostly on breathing and keeping afloat (laughs) and a little bit of focus on the real reason for all of this.
6: The other good thing that's really nice about the swimming is the coffee afterwards. Uh, (laughs) Soup! Yeah, I like the soup afterwards, yeah, I know how to do it. This is
4: the first phase, this is the the pain phase. And when phase runs over, the pleasant phase. (laughs) The fun begins. OK. After a few minutes, once my body had time to adjust, it started to feel liberating. I could stay in here for ages, I thought. And then it got cold again. Time to get out. Can I get a coffee? A coffee? Yeah. Back in the cafe, with that cup of coffee and some hot soup, it was time for a chat. That's fine. We've been in. We were
6: in for about 15 minutes, do you think? Yeah, 16 minutes, I think. Why? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I think when you I live near to the water and it's nice to stay involved with the lake for as long as you can. The wetsuit's fine, but you don't get the euphoria that you get from cold water swimming.
4: For sure, I mean I've been out for about ten minutes or something and my skin is still tingling, I'm still kind of buzzing and shivering, of course. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I was expecting when I came down. But it's quite a varied amount of people, I mean you're sat here in a suit. What do people, do you t- tell people back at the office when you go back? What's the reaction when you tell people what you've done at lunchtime?
6: Well, it's very, the reaction is quite interesting. All the people that have never done it, all say they cannot do it. And all the people that have done it, even only once, go back to it. So, the rea- yeah, the people have this, you know, nobody, nobody thinks it's possible, but once you do it, you come back to it. Because the feeling you have afterwards, is just, you know, you feel very, very good for many, many hours after having done it. Often people will come over and they'll talk to you and say, oh, is it not cold? And I say, well, it's actually fine. <laughs> and then they say, oh, you're British. As if just because you're British, <laughs> you have an affinity and fondness for cold water.
4: Is it something about the Brits?
6: I don't know. Well, actually, h- historically, a lot of the famous people like Lord Byron, Captain Webb was the first person to swim the channel. So there has been this this kind of uh, British culture or affinity for uh, challenging yourself or having some kind of adventure involving cold water or harsh elements. What seemed like a pretty extreme activity for a weekday
4: lunchtime turned out to be an energising, refreshing and sociable way to spend the hour. And although it might not be for everyone, it's great to see Zurich's relationship with the lake continue throughout the year. The Monocle, shivering in Zurich. I'm Bill Lutie.
0: Thank you, Bill. We'll fetch you a glue vine before that chill sets in. And finally today, a weekend viewing suggestion from the Monocle Film Club. Here's Ben Ryland.
7: Director Kelly Reichardt is often described by her peers as one of the leading forces working in the film industry today, with titles such as Night Moves in 2013 and Certain Women in 2016 she's earned what's clearly a well-deserved reputation as a thoroughly original artist. It's little surprise then that she's now being welcomed into the Criterion Collection with her breakout success, Old Joy, from 2006. It's the story of two old friends who meet and take part in what becomes a tender reunion of sorts. By way of an overnight camping trip, Reichardt again turned to a favorite writer, in this case, Jonathan Raymond, whose short story the film is based upon. Despite her reputation, however, Reichardt is gently unassuming and modest when discussing her artistic influence. I asked her what it's like to be considered such a giant of her craft.
3: I don't really live in a world where that comes into play, <laughs> I guess.
7: Perhaps take me back to the 90s when your first feature, River of Grass, was first forming in your mind. Uh, it's, of course, the story of two, you might say, uh, socially distant people who were drawn together by a chance encounter and embark on a well, somewhat directionless journey after a crime that may or may not have actually happened. Uh, what suggested that story to you early on?
3: I had an interest in shooting in Florida in showing Miami in a light that I hadn't seen before in films because I grew up there and and so you know the landscape was probably the beginning of it and it's a genre film it's a road movie and so it was sort of the idea of thinking the road movie had kind of played itself out and where you know how could the genre be kind of deconstructed a bit. And I I, I think those were probably the first seeds of the idea. If you ever mistakenly got on the Palmetto Expressway and headed west, you'd run right into the Florida Everglades, an area that Indians like to call the River of Grass. Someday, I wonder if there was any other person on this planet as lonely as me. As it turned out, there was, and he was living just a county
7: I recall you describing River of Grass as a road movie without the road. And it's interesting to consider that your film after that, Old Joy, also put its own spin on the road movie concept too. But it depicts these two people that seem to be at opposite ends of their own life journey. You've got the bohemian sort of character who uh, rejected the the so-called system of the, the modern world and then his old friend who has apparently moved on from that style of mentality.
3: Old Joy came from a book, a novella by John Raymond, and the next four films I made came from either short stories that John had written or from screenplay, like Meek's Cutoff, all came from the mind of John Raymond. So to me it was shooting River of Grass in my hometown where you... At that time in life, there was always this idea about like shooting what you know. And to me, it became much more interesting to enter a world where I was shooting things that weren't familiar to me. Not that I didn't have an idea about them. I mean, certainly Old Joy was familiar to me, but the landscape was new to me. And that's part of, I think, the real pleasure in filmmaking is being introduced to a world that you're going to spend the next couple of years of your life investigating and researching and diving into and getting to know and having a little bit of distance from also so that you can just sort of, I guess, keep a critical eye about it. They're all relatable stories as far as, you know, the big black hole of survival and community. And all those themes are translated into these different little worlds, like the world of communal living and night moves or Meek's cutoff, which is a Western from 1845, where you're traveling in a community, and Wendy and Lucy is about, you know, the community in a different sense of—they all kind of ask a question of our relation to each other and responsibility to a stranger— Uh, The last film I made was from a collection of stories by Montana writer Miley Malloy. So it's been very great to find writers that are letting me get to, like letting the films have a richness that I don't think I could get to on my own.
7: Kelly Reichardt's film Old Joy will be released by the Criterion Collection on the 10th of December. For Monocle, I'm Ben Ryland.
0: We'll have more picks from the Monocle Film Club next week. And that's your Winter Weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Monocle Weekends podcast. Catch the live programme every Saturday from 8am London time via the Monocle 24 iPhone app on your desktop or using the TuneIn Radio smartphone app.